Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome in. It is David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Stud. Please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. Let's step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee Stud. Ron Fuller. What's up, Ron? Yeah, Dave, man. It's great to be here with you. Thank you very much. And uh, great intro as always. And uh, just, uh, boy, I, I got to tell you, Dave, we got a we got a monster today. We got a really, really good one. They, I, they keep getting better, but wow, I think this one is going to really excite some fans. They're going to get to see and hear some stuff today that that uh, they've never seen probably and nothing like it. So yeah, it's a, it's cool, man. I'm in good shape. My team, my bucks got it done. You know, uh, I'm sitting here in the home of the super bowl champions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. 2000. What is it? 2020 or 2021 champion? 2021, Ron, wake up. Okay. 2021. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the home of the 2021 super bowl champions. Wow, well, I think I think technically it would be the the 2020 champions. Yeah, no, I was wondering about how they do that. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, well, it doesn't make any difference. They won. That's all. Did you did point. you sit all the way through the game? I, I I could I didn't miss it. I mean, by the by the time we got to the fourth quarter, it was not as fun, but uh, it was still enjoyable. Uh, I sat not only through the whole game, man. I sat through the whole uh, all the celebration and the the, the, <laughs> the presenting of the trophy and. I mean, you don't get this kind of deal too often, you know. Uh, exactly. If you're a fan, exactly. Uh, you want to, you want to get all of it, you know. And yeah. uh, what's really amazing is Tampa. This is really an amazing thing to me. Tampa this year had a had a baseball team in the World Series. Yep. They had the 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 Stanley Cup winning hockey team, and now they got the Super Bowl football team, man. So absolutely, uh, uh, we're we're riding high in this market. Well, I was curious though, living in St. Pete, which is like the sister city to Tampa, could you kind of feel what was happening with the Super Bowl? Was there was was the buzz over in St. Pete also? Oh man, <laughs> the buzz has been there for a whole week. <laughs> it's all over to Florida, I think. I mean, you know, people in Orlando buzzing about it. No, but um, especially anybody in the Tampa area, man. Uh, you know, it's just like living in one city in this area. 
Yeah. You got Tampa, you got Clearwater, you got St. Pete, but they all are the same type of people. And they're all into their sport teams. And, and they're yeah. all called Tampa Bay. Uh, so, you know, I mean, uh, uh, the, everybody just gets on board. Absolutely. I thought it was interesting that there were 30,000 cardboard cutouts and 25,000 humans at the Super Bowl. Yeah. 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 I, you looked at that stadium and thought, wow, yeah. we're, we're doing good, man. How, how are they putting all those people in? I there? know, right? Yeah, well, you know Listen. how the, that, I, I, I should have figured that out years ago in wrestling. Oh, no doubt. It was a super game, and congratulations to the GOAT. Tom Brady. Speaking of super, Super Studcast number 38, part one, was just released. It is Southeastern Knoxville's story of success from beginning to end with the Knoxville War in 1979. I listened to part one, Ron. I was blown away. It was amazing how you and people like Les Thatcher, so many wrestlers and others, were able to accomplish what you did in just two years after starting Southeastern Wrestling from 1,200 fans in Knoxville, the first night Southeastern was introduced to 5,200 in the Knoxville Coliseum only two years later for that incredible Terry Funk match. And after hearing part one, by the way, I think this new super studcast entitled Building Southeastern Knoxville, the best small territory ever, and how it died is going to be the most impressive story of wrestling success that we've ever heard. I cannot wait to hear part two that covers 77 until the infamous 1979 Knoxville wrestling war. I think that's just going to be awesome. It is fantastic stuff stud. So now what gave you this idea for the new super stud cast? Well, you know, Dave, when, when I started doing these weekly stud casts uh, specifically about uh, Southeastern wrestling and uh, what was happening every week, a week at a time, uh, from, you know, the last year or more, I've been, uh, been doing this and, uh, and that's really where the idea was born. Uh, when I started to focus on and research each one of these weeks and look back at the cards and the gates, uh, the attendance, you know, when you're go looking back 44 years ago, I realized something very significant in the history of the sport was taking place in Knoxville, Tennessee from 1974 to 1979. So I think this Super Stud cast is the most historic wrestling subject I've tackled since I started doing podcasts almost four years ago. Wow. Uh, so, you know, I'm really proud of it. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's made me take a another look at Southeastern and what was accomplished. Uh, and uh, this one's a real ride that I personally took basically from the bottom of a risky business venture to the top of the world of wrestling that going to tragically end in deceit, disloyalty, and destruction of uh -oh. the greatest small territory ever built. Uh, so it's kind of a unique, true story about, uh, you know, in my case, somebody that risked it all and succeeded in a big way and uh, ultimately had to watch it all disappear and die. So, <laughs> wow. So it's my story, and by gosh, I think this one had to be told. Oh, no doubt about it. Fans are going to see you in a completely new way after hearing this one, Ron. Another amazing super studcast. So where are we riding today? Tell us what's happening today. Well, it begins today by putting on our promoter hats, and we're going to go into the WBIR control room and studio, and we're going to produce two very important TV commercials that's going to promote Southeastern wrestling uh, in the year of 1977. 
And our main focus today is also going to be on the Cadillac Tournament Finals in the Knoxville Coliseum. It's on Sunday afternoon, February 13th, 1977. And we're all going to find out finally who won that beautiful pink Cadillac and what happens afterward. I also have some big news later about listeners being able to see actual film footage of this Cadillac Finals match. And uh, we'll break that all down. Uh, uh, we're going to also talk about the TV that promoted the Cadillac match, uh, get the results of the entire card, and obviously the attendance at, toward the end of the show. Mm-hmm. Our learning tree question of the day is a really good one, Dave, uh, from a guy named Alexander Johnson. And he asked, when was the next NWA world title match coming to Southeastern? And was it also going to have the same Terry Funk type of buildup? So, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting point right there. So that's going to be cool to see. All right. So this sounds like it's going to be another great ride, Ron. I can't wait to hear more about that video from 44 years ago. That's now on your website. My horse, his name is Recliner and he is raring to go. I named him Recliner because he, he's a lazy boy. I hope your lightning can keep up. <laughs> oh man. You never stop, man. I'm Are you kidding me? Your horse is named Recliner, and he's a lazy boy. Uh, yeah, dog. Yeah. And you hope he can keep up. Uh, the lightning's going to keep up with him. Well, i tell you what, yeah. Dave. We're got to ride today, man. You're going to have to hold on. Uh, and if your horse is reclining, uh, you're going to have to lay back real good because uh, this one's going to wear you out. I'm good with that, too. Where are we headed to first? Where are we riding first? Well, man, this ride is going to begin, obviously, with the day's training, and we're going to put on those promoter hats, and we're going to be working with the, our TV station, WBIR and Knoxville. Uh, the tremendous crew that they have there, we're going to produce two 30-second promotional commercial spots that's going to be inserted in TV shows from sign-on to sign-off on that station from January of 1977 to March of 1977. So these spots were a gift from the GM of WBIR. We talked about this on the Studcast a while back for our uh, production of uh, unbelievable ratings in the November 1976 ratings books. Wow. So I never heard of any wrestling company anywhere that ever received a gift like this. TV stations don't give away commercials. No, they don't, you know, yeah. but uh, yeah. when they looked at those numbers, man, they, it shocked them. And, uh, you know, it's a reward. It was a real reward. And uh, and we happen to be in rating period in this one, by golly. And uh, <laughs> you imagine we're going to kick butt and do the same thing in 1977, too. So uh, our Southeastern director, Bill Kincaid, and I worked together on these commercials. And there were two different ones. Uh, the first commercial was me in a suit, of all things, with a cowboy hat on, of all things, wearing a suit. And thanking fans for making Southeastern Wrestling one of the most watched TV shows in WBIR history. Now, commercial number two was completely different. It featured the show's unique opening with the music in it, uh, the moving computer-generated wrestling characters that was in that opening, and the audio that included the fact that we were voted by the Wrestling Writers Association of America as the top wrestling television show in the world. From there, it jumped to Liss, sitting at the desk with the panels behind and moving instantly and amazingly from one background to another as the show was in progress. 
then it switched to Ronnie Garvin dropping out of the rafters off of one of those jumps off the top rope and dropping a knee in an opponent's throat. And uh, that was at full speed. And then that was followed instantly by an instant replay of the same thing. Then it finished with a split screen shot of both the Von Steigers getting a submission from their opponents at the same time while they were on opposite sides of the ring. Beautiful split screen shot. So in only 30 seconds, fans could see how far technically we were ahead of our time. Uh, when you combine these TV first with the tremendous wrestling talent that we're piecing together, 1977, there's really no wonder we were beginning to set records at the box office that no other small territory ever got close to. I mean, you know, we're just rocking, man. Promoting your product is one of the keys to every business. I don't care what the business is. Uh, and I found in the future, uh, when I changed sports to hockey, and later on when I got into ADT security business, that whatever you spent to promote yourself came back to your company, as the Bible says, tenfold. You know, it just uh, it, it was <laughs> the thing to do if you wanted to be successful. The beautiful thing about these two Southeastern TV show commercials was the fact that they were absolutely free, like you just said. Again, no wonder we were setting records. If they're going to run these spots for you 10 times a day for two months, uh, wow, it's one of the reasons we were setting records. So this was the second week in February of 1977, and it was another television ratings month. And as a booker, promoter, and an owner of a wrestling company, this month's income was coming from a lot more than just the gates at the live events. I can tell you that. It was really heavily based, especially in the future, on what you put on your wrestling TV show four times in that rating period month. I was amazed at the National Wrestling Alliance Convention in Las Vegas, Nevada, every August, how few promoters and owners back in those days even knew that TV stations got quarterly ratings books that measured their wrestling audience and that those books determined their future. And you haven't been in that business, Dave. That's pretty probably amazing to you that a lot of these guys didn't even know. You must have felt like an insider because you had all this information and then realized that there were a, a lot of promoters, bookers like you, that kind of had no idea what was going on when it came to that aspect of the business. For sure. For, in, in fact, uh, Sam Mutchick, president of the NWA, knew what was going on. He knew what the ratings books were. And he saw one of our Southeastern shows in 1976. And he called me up and he says, Ron, at the next meeting in August, he said, I, I want you to speak every year from then on, on at the convention about everything owners need to know about every aspect of their TV shows. He had seen the split screen. He had seen the instant replay. He had seen the, the stint that revolved. He, all those things were remarkable to him. And he said, geez, I can't believe you're doing this. Everybody needs to know what you're doing. We mm. need to help everybody. I was all in, man. I was all for it. So, uh, you know, there I was, you know, uh, 28 years old, standing up front and speaking to a room of full of really successful wrestling owners, man. Most of them twice my age. Some of them more than twice my age at that point. You know, <laughs> 28 years old, you mm -hmm. know. I was always amazed at how many of them came after I did these presentations each year on television and thanked me for, for the advice, you know, as a, 
Oddly enough, you wouldn't expect that from old hard time wrestlers. But you did you receive any anything financially from the NWA? But and, and what what how is it helping you to give away like trade secrets part of your success? Well, you know, everybody owned territories and, and you didn't compete with each other. So, you know, I felt like I was doing the right thing to help others, you know, and if I had an idea that was working. If I had an angle that was working, I mean, and a lot of other guys did that. They swapped ideas and they swapped angles and uh, they tried to help each other. Uh, The NWA was a tremendous organization. And, uh, you know, I just felt like I was doing my part. I I was really honored to be able to stand up in front of them and tell them uh, what you what you can do and what you can't do and what you should be doing and that you Mm -hmm. ought to check your ratings and how important it all was. And with the president of the NWA, Sam Munchnick, you were keeping him happy. So that wasn't hurting you in the long run. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, uh, I want to polish his knob, man. I mean, uh, he's going to give me the champion, you know, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that later on in this show about <laughs> getting the champion and, and uh, how important it was. That's cool. It's it's kind of hard to imagine getting up in front of a bunch of crazy wrestlers and uh, even promoters and and owners, and you were the youngest guy in the room. How, how did that feel? I mean, <laughs> I bet they were intimidated by you. Oh, I don't know about that part of it, you know, but, uh, you know, I grew up around that type of person. I mean, I grew up a third-generation wrestler. I, I'd, I'd been around wrestlers a lot. But I can imagine for somebody that didn't to stand up in a room like that in front of those guys, it'd scare <laughs> the hell out of them. Oh, I bet. No doubt. Because that's one of the most difficult things to do is to speak in public. And obviously in the wrestling profession, that's something that is required. All right. So where to now, Ron? Well, we're going to jump right into that February 13th, 1977 afternoon in the Civic Coliseum. What a card this is and what an afternoon that was looking back on it. The opening match was Rip Smith against Norvell Austin. The second match was Robert Fuller against Louis Tillette. Uh, the third match was the so-called original gladiator's mask. If he lost, he had to remove his mask against Dick Steinborn. If he lost, he had to leave Southeastern. So uh, a lot stake in that match. Ron Wright and I faced the Von Steiger brothers in the title match for their Southeastern Tag Championship. Jimmy Golden, managed by his father, Bill Golden, was going to wrestle against the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Don Carson, in a return match for the Southeastern Championship. The main event was the finals for that beautiful $12,000 Cadillac parked in the building in plain sight of the entire crowd where fans could see it for the final time. They had been parked in that Coliseum for every event since the tournament started, and it had been driven all over that territory and parked in uh, front of uh, high school gyms and Every place else, we had promoted this tournament big time and that automobile at the same time. So in that match, obviously, Bob Armstrong is going to meet Ronnie Garvin, and the winner is going to drive that Cadillac out. So it's down to those two. Yep, down to two. This is it. Okay. All right. This is for all the marbles, or should I say a lot of sweet rides in the future. I bet I know where we're headed to now, Ron. We're going to back that car up one day to the TV show built around the Cadillac and the card, right? That's a pretty good way of putting it, Dave. You know, since this studcast is all about an automobile, 
yeah, we're backing that car up one day. We're going to do that TV the day before. We're going to give it away. And this TV had a lot of stake, including my Southeastern TV trophy. And it began with Les Thatcher running down the matches. That way we started every week. Uh, and since it was the second week in February and the rating period, a uh, pretty good card, as a matter of fact. And when those cameras backed away, there was Dick Steinborn sitting next to him. Dick Steinborn's all patched up. <laughs> He's had a, he had a tough match the, the week before. And, uh, you know, so the Giants still shot behind them, showed a bloody Steinborn about to remove the mask from a bleeding gladiator. So, uh, you know, that's what had happened the week before, and their match this time is even more important. So let's ask Dickie Steinborn right off to explain to the fans what was happening in that shot. So Steinborn started uh, explaining it by saying something about the, his taking that mask off the face, fake gladiator, as he called him, should have happened long ago when he returned to Southeastern after he got hurt by uh, the Von Steigers and a couple of other guys. And that he had heard of a wrestler trying to step into another wrestler's life, but not any wrestler trying to step into another wrestler's persona and his <laughs> mask. You know, so I never heard one go that direction. So this mask man, he said, has been trying to intimidate him by wearing his outfit. And it was time for the fake gladiator to pay for it. So he continued at this point in, in, in the match. Uh, I was about to show everyone, he says, uh, you know, this that he's talking about this still frame shot. He said, I was about to show everybody this guy's face, the imposter's face. It was time. He asked the director, he said, play the video. So almost immediately, that just as Steinborn was actually removing the mask, the Von Steigers they showed up at ringside and they covered this masked man's head with a towel. Mm -hmm. So Steinborn began to fight the two Germans. So, you know, what did, what's he going to do? He wanted to expose this guy, but they've, they've already taken care of that. So then Ron Wright and I arrived at ringside and we took over the, for Steinborn. And Dickie chased the unmasked gladiator all the way back to the big curtain in the back of the building where the dressing rooms were. Uh, he wasn't able to get him. Guy had a towel over his head and he's running like crazy. Uh, most territories, even the big ones, didn't have angles like this that involve wrestlers four matches down the card. Uh, that was just unheard of. You know, lots of territories didn't even have great wrestlers four matches down the card, to be honest with you. You know, it, it, it was pretty unusual that you had top to bottom good talent. The mm -hmm. fact this angle even existed was a really good sign for Southeastern. It, it was a sign that the territory was beginning to fill itself up from top to bottom with stars, like guys like Dick Steinborn as a perfect yeah. example. And Steinborn was, he was still very upset about the video. And all of a sudden, the gladiator walks by him on the way to the ring. He's in the first match on the show. So Les asked Dickie, you know, would you like to stay for the match? And Steinborn obviously said, yeah, I'll stay with you for the match. <laughs> so the original gladiator went to the ring. He got introduced. The bell rang. And he just ran across the ring. He attacked the guy he was wrestling. The first thing he did was throw him over the top rope, out onto the floor of the concrete, got out of the ring, and he ran over and grabbed him. And ran him face first in the steel ring post. I mean, it was like, wow, what's this all about? And Steinborn uh, was already upset. And now he got even madder. He's like, what is he doing? 
you know, and uh, the referee obviously rung the bell. I mean, the match didn't last 10 seconds. You know, as soon as he tossed him over the top rope, he got disqualified. But the gladiator didn't care. So he just threw the guy back up in the ring, and he continued to pound him. And then uh, he got ready, uh, and he turned toward the set, and he motioned to Steinborn, who's sitting over there with Les, to come on in. <laughs> you know, and the, that's all it took. Dicky boy, he bolted for the ring, man. He was he was in there in a the flash. But the gladiator was knew he was coming, and uh, he kind of set him up, and he pounded him as he came through the ropes, and he, he got him down, and then he shot him over into the ropes. And when he came off the ropes, he scooped him up. He was going to slam him. And Dickie was Dickie was great wrestler, man. He just dropped right down behind the gladiator's back, and he put the sleeper on him right there. Wow. Studio pop. It's like, wow, look at this. That show ain't been on three minutes, and, and we already got a fight with two other guys, and uh, <laughs> one's got the sleeper. You know, and so Seinborn put him out. He, he put him to sleep right there, and then he, he set him up on his butt. And he started to unlace his mask. He's going to unmask him right there on TV. And he just about had the mask off. And the Von Steigers, the two Von Steigers again, just as they had done the week before, they ran out there and grabbed him, grabbed him by the legs, the, the gladiator, and they drug him out before Don Moore could pull his mask off. Mm-hmm. And they took him to the dressing room because he was supposed to be in the next that commercial break. But, you know, he was he'd been asleep. He didn't get smacked on the back of the neck, and he didn't get the normal treatment that you do when you get put to sleep. He's still groggy. He's still half out. So two minutes later, they brought him back. They delivered a half unconscious gladiator back for the first interview. And Steinborn's <laughs> in the other studio, Studio B. So Steinborn promised, you know, uh, right off, he sees that the, the other guy can't talk. So he, he goes, you know. He promised to the crowd, I, I'm going to beat this imposter tomorrow. And then and, and because uh, if I don't, I got to leave Southeastern and I'm no way going to leave here. And the gladiator's going to get unmasked tomorrow because he's going to lose and he's got to. So Steinborn wasn't going anywhere and the crowd popped, man. So the Von Steigers, they basically had to speak for the sagging gladiator. He was just hanging on their shoulders and his head's all down. <laughs> and, they, and they promised they went on and made an interview just like it was for them and they promised that this guy here the real gladiator you know he's going to win and that pretty boy steinborn he's going to be gone forever when he loses tomorrow so second segment of the tv show began oh boy you talk about jumping things up bob armstrong came to the set and wow did he get a standing standing ovation man from the studio crowd he was really over, man, at this point, uh, just from winning Cadillac tournaments, matches, you know, he was over. But he, he watched a video from the Sunday before where he beat uh, a great wrestler, man, and, and the unpredictable Dick Slater. And then he went to the ring and he drove that studio crowd crazy, man, against another very good opponent, a young David Schultz. And uh, Bob danced. He used some of his karate, his Marine karate, and he finished the young Schultz off with a huge right hand. I mean, it looked like he, one of those Popeye movies where you hit him and the head flew off, you know? Yeah. The old game that they used to have, and the, the pot, when you hit him and they had him boxing, they hit Rock him. Rock'em, sock'em robots, yes. There you go. It was a rock'em, sock'em robot shot. 
And yes. Wow. <laughs> Everybody in the studio was like, wow, God, he'll never get up. So he returned to the set with Les and he tore into Ronnie Garvin, man. That's his opponent. The next day for the car. And he began putting the fans in Southeastern over, man. He, he's a smart dude, Bob. Great interviewer. He started out by saying that the Southeastern fans were the best wrestling fans he'd ever wrestled for. He said he'd never seen crowds like the ones that were filling the Coliseum every week now. And tomorrow was a special day for him. He'd always, he said, wanted to own a Cadillac, but he never dreamed he could win one. <laughs> Right. I mean, so that is a pretty big step, man. You know, buying one's one thing, but a win one, that wow. Yeah. So that that there was he said that there's no limit tomorrow to what he was gonna do to drive that pink Cadillac home from the Coliseum the next day. Uh then Garvin became the focus, right? He said uh, you know, Ronnie Garvin was a backstabber. He said, Ronnie Garvin uh, he stabbed one of my best friends, Ron Fuller, in the back in a world championship match. Cost him the world championship. And he goes, a lot of other wrestlers, not only here in Southeastern, but around the wrestling world, uh, have no respect for Ronnie Garvin. You know, he's this type of guy. He finished by warning Ronnie Garvin. He said something like, tomorrow you won't be sneaking up behind me. He goes, if someone gets hurt tomorrow, it isn't going to be me. You know, Garvin, he said, I might even jump off the top rope in your throat tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> and boy, the studio exploded again, man. They were they were into it. The personality profile was next. It was live from Studio B with Jimmy Golden and a very special guest, his father, Bill Golden. Bill, who was a great guy, man. I love Bill Golden. He was a wonderful man. Bill would be in his corner, in Jimmy's corner, the next afternoon in the Coliseum because of Jimmy's wrestling the stopper again for the Southeastern Championship. So Les is very familiar with Jimmy's father. And Jimmy's father was a famous and respected promoter in Alabama, mostly Alabama, ran some towns in Louisiana as well, in Mississippi too. And Les had wrestled for Bill Golden many times. So Les welcomed him and shook his hand. The three of them sat down in those huge chairs for the personality profile guests that we used every week. So Bill told us right off and the studio audience, and those at home, everybody out there, how proud he was of his son, how his friends had been keeping up with what was going on in Southeastern wrestling, how they told him that last week, Jimmy had the Southeastern title one over a I think Bill called him a very scary opponent, the Mongolian stomper, <laughs> and that Don Carson, his manager, was a snake in the grass and that he was he got involved in this match, and he's the reason his son didn't win the Southeastern Championship. So Les had the director run the video of that match because Bill had never seen it. Uh, so that uh, this way, Bill could see exactly what happened. And he watched Don Carson come into the ring after the referee was down. Uh, Jimmy was on top of the stomper, had him pinned, was waiting on the referee to count him out. And for the first time since the stomper's arrival and Carson became his manager, Carson pulled his peanut butter black glove out from underneath his oversized sport coat, loaded <laughs> it up, he hit Jimmy in the back of the head, and he left the ring. Stomper rolled on top, and the rest was history, obviously. Ah, yeah. So, Billy, Billy Golden, uh, 
he, you know, when that when it was over and the camera came back, he was totally shocked. You could see it in his face. And he looked at Jimmy and he said, uh, son, you never told me it was that bad. Jimmy told his father, he said, you know, dad, I didn't want to tell you because he knew. He said, I know. I knew if I told you that you're going to want to get involved and you're probably going to want to be in my corner the next time he had a shot at the title. So that's what the card was. For the next day, that's exactly what was going to happen. Bill said, Bill, Jimmy told his father, he still wasn't happy about this match. He said he was horrified just thinking about his daddy being involved because he was afraid his father was going to get hurt. Well, Bill shot back that, uh, you know, he, he, he really he made a strong point. He, he said something like, you know, uh, you got hurt, didn't you, Jimmy? And uh, he says, you should be the Southeastern champion. And do you think that what happened to you last week ain't going to happen to you tomorrow? You know, of course it's going to happen. And two on one, how are you going to win, man? So Les interrupted. And he asked the director to play the video that was made earlier in the morning that had the Mongolian Stomper and Don Carson on it. Stomper was standing behind Don Carson, who was sitting in the same chair hours earlier than this profile was made. So Stomper had his championship belt on, and he was pumping that huge old semi-truck tire spring, man, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, like crazy. And Carson was sitting there smiling and in a rare form. He was there by himself on the set, Stomper doing his thing behind him. So then uh, Don Carson opened up by, he too welcomed Bill Golden to Southeastern Wrestling. He said, I'm going <laughs> to welcome Bill Golden to Southeastern Wrestling. He said, uh, that Bill Golden. I'm really proud of him. He, he says he's finally dealing with a company that's run by real promoters rather than a loser promoter like Jimmy Golden's daddy is. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, boy, he starts it right, man. So, yeah. so yeah. he starts in then and he, he recalled the story that Jimmy told on the last TV about how he, the great Don Carson, had blacked both of Jimmy's daddy's eyes because the thief promoter Bill Golden had stole money from him on a payoff, Uh-oh. you know, and that he was glad to see Bill Golden was going to be in his son's corner the next day because it offered him the opportunity to black both of Bill Golden's eyes again. So the stopper stopped pumping his tire arm and broke out laughing behind him. <laughs> and, and so Carson said, uh, he said, see, Jimmy Golden, and 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 Bill Golden, he goes, even even the Stomper's going to have some fun tomorrow. Working your daddy over, Jimmy. <laughs> the director slowly faded the camera shot back to black, and as the two of them were laughing like crazy, and and they faded them out. So now, boy, when they came back after seeing that, boy, both Bill and Jimmy were fired up. Now that that's a whole new game now. So uh, Jimmy says, uh, you know, Dad. I'm still very worried about you, he goes, but I'm also more determined than ever to become Southeastern champion after that interview. He says, I know my best shot to win is having somebody in my corner, somebody like you I can trust. And he said, me and you, Daddy, tomorrow are going to make wrestling history, and we're also going to get even for what Don Carson did to you years ago. So they stood up and they hugged each other. The studio crowd popped. Man, it was one of the best personality profiles in Southeastern history. Wow. No doubt about it. Are you, I mean, for real, that fired me up. What happened in the match the next day? 
Well, rein in your horse recliner now, which probably ain't too hard a little bit. You're getting ahead of things, man. Well, you not you ain't going to outrun lightning that way. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that match later. So let's finish this TV first, man. Well, uh, it's not a big deal to slow recliner down. So, hey, look, I think we're at a good point to take a break. Let's do that. This studcast will continue in a moment. Don't leave us. We'll be right back. It was October 25th, 1974. A 26-year-old wrestler bought the rights to attempt to fulfill his dream of building his own territory. Knoxville, Tennessee, on the edge of the Great Smoky Mountains, was the city where he paid $150,000 for the opportunity. That would be $845,000 in 2020 money. It was only one city and far from being a territory. Everybody in wrestling said he was a fool. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast. Not only did it happen, Knoxville's Southeastern Wrestling became not just a territory, but the best small territory in the history of the sport. Super Studcast number 38, part one, tells the fascinating story of how he did it. Taking you on a ride into the mountains with the third generation Welsh family member that had only been in wrestling for four years. Ron Fuller Welch's story of how he hit wrestling gold is absolutely remarkable. Les Thatcher, the man that rode all the way with him, rides with him again at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. More than three hours of awesome wrestling history for only $2.99. It's truly the best deal in wrestling. Hey, welcome back. It's another studcast. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller. And don't forget tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com. You get the book, Brutus. You can get it right there. You can even get it autographed. There are a couple of t-shirts in blue and black that you will absolutely love. Photos that are autographed. I mean, a ton of photos, even just for checking out at tnstud.com. And then the DVD pack is absolutely one of the best deals in wrestling. tnstud.com. Dot com. Okay, I'm assuming the ride continues right here, and we're still talking about Mr. Garvin. Yes, we are, man. Uh, we're coming back after that great personality profile. This show is really cranked, man. It's it's going to be uh, exactly what you want in ratings period. Third segment of the show was all Ronnie Garvin, and it opened with him at the set with Les. They watched the spectacular last five minutes of the 30-minute time limit draw that he had had the Sunday before with Rob. And the crowd was on its feet in this video for that entire last five minutes. And I cannot in any way describe what that crowd sounded like back in those days. You got to hear it to believe it. Uh, It was so loud. That building was so loud. So after the time limit ran out on that match and the match ended up in a draw, Guys were confused. What do we do here? And Les went down to the ring. Thank goodness. Uh, got somebody there who's, uh, who's got the, the mind and the ability to go and handle this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Les showed up down at the ring. Then came in a few minutes the most famous coin toss in Southeastern history. Uh, Garvin won the toss. And Les asked him right then how he felt at that moment after winning the coin toss. Right? Right. So, <laughs> Garvin, Garvin's a heel to the bone, man. You know, he's, he says, you know, Les Thatcher, hey, you're really lucky that I won that coin toss. <laughs> 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 Les says, why is that? 
<laughs> and he says, I was planning on jumping off the top rope in your throat if I didn't. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ronnie was becoming a natural man. He, he didn't need anybody to talk for him, man. He was he was getting it fast. So he went to the ring. He's wrestling. And he, and he did do it just what he mentioned he was going to do to Thatcher. He jumped off the top rope in another guy's throat, and they got the pin, and they carried another wrestler out of the studio. I mean, you know, he was he just was on a roll. So he went back to the set and he did his own interview about his chance to win the Cadillac the next day. He told a story, uh, a great one, about growing up a poor kid with no food most of the time in Montreal, Canada. He, he said he couldn't buy his first ugly car until he had wrestled for two years. <laughs> uh, he, he told us he had sneaked down to look at that Cadillac every week in the Coliseum before they let any fans into the building. Really? You know, he said, uh, he said, I promised myself that I would stop at nothing to win that car. And unless Thatcher, I mean, stop at nothing. <laughs> he said, I never liked Bob Armstrong. He's too pretty. And he loved the fans. <laughs> That's yeah. what he said. He's too pretty. And he loved the fans. And he said, I heard he was a big American soldier. Uh, this is a good line. And he says, they called him. Mamines or something like that. Mamines. Mamines, yeah. And Les corrected him. He said, uh, he said, he said, no, no, you mean Marine. Marine. Garvin <laughs> barely even stopped. He didn't care that he didn't get right. it right, you know. Right. <laughs> so Garvin just didn't stop long enough hardly for him less to even correct it. And he said, tomorrow, he says, Bob Armstrong better put on that uniform and he better bring his guns because I'm gonna do whatever it takes to win that car. He says, there's absolutely nothing that I will not do to win that car. He said, tomorrow, people out there watching, you're going to see the real mean Ronnie Garvin. You ain't seen him yet. And he said, nothing and no one, Marine or an entire army of them, can stop me tomorrow. He said, mm. I see you tomorrow. That tree just got up and left. I sat upstairs in the control room, and for the first time, I, I knew that. Ronnie Garvin was going to become one of the greatest talkers and wrestlers and workers in wrestling history. Mm. And just, mm. it just really stuck me right there. God, this guy's got it. So the TV closed with the promised Southeastern TV championship match. It was me, obviously, the TV champion against Kurt Von Steiger. He had challenged me at the end of the last TV show, right before we closed out the show. So I'm defending the trophy. I put it in the middle of the ring. Uh, they introduce us. And we have almost a 15-minute match, man, under those blazing hot TV lights. Great match. Uh, both of those Von Steigers were great workers. And uh, we tore that studio crowd up, man, for 15 minutes. And at the end of the match, I was able to get my fuller leg lock on, Kurt. And uh, Carl was standing there watching the match in the, in the heels corner, the entire match. Once I snapped that leg lock on, Kurt, boy, Carl popped into the ring and he put the boots to me because I'm on my back. I'm pretty helpless when I got that hold on. And uh, Kurt got up and joined him and they started to put the boots to me pretty good. And then, boy, I got a old number one hillbilly, man, my partner. And the next afternoon, I'm wrestling <laughs> against these Von Steigers. The old number one hillbilly, man, arrived in the ring. Boy, that studio went nuts. I mean, it was electric in that building. 
the Germans, man, they took a powder, they hit the floor, but the crowd never stopped, man. They just, they, they never stopped their cheering. We went to the set and uh, the Von Steigers had gone into Studio B to do their part of the interview. So they opened up the interview about our Southeastern tag match the next day. And they complained about my using a dangerous and should be illegal hold that breaks legs. And they said, Big Bad John is a great example. Look, he's gone. He broke his leg. They were really upset about it. And then they said, but you know, our German crab, and, the, and meaning the Boston crab, they changed the name now to, the, instead of the Boston crab, it's their German crab. German crab, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the German crab. Our German crab is much better than that Boston crab, the American version of it. You know, Big Bad John, he says, would wrestle again. Ron Fuller broke his leg, but he'll wrestle again. But they said, when we finish breaking theirs backs tomorrow, they'll neither one ever wrestle again. So they really had a pretty good interview. I was impressed. Yeah. So yeah. I started for us. I saved the last for Ron, you know. And I said, uh, you know, Big Bad John was not the first leg that I'd ever broken. But tomorrow's a, a really special thing for me. I said, it's the first time that I ever am going to have a chance to break two legs in one match. <laughs> I, said, I said, especially two brothers that don't belong in America. I mean, wow, this is going to be fun. Oh, the fans <laughs> popped on that. They loved it. And uh, so Ron took it from there. He started out by saying something like, you know, they, there's a lot of great things that were going to happen tomorrow in that big coliseum besides someone winning a fancy car. One more thing for sure, he says, two Germans whose country lost the World War II was going to lose again, and two <laughs> Tennessee boys was going to be Southeastern Tag Champions. And then he said, and then one other thing's going to happen. Listen, uh, he's talking to Les, and he goes, uh, them Germans, they gonna get a Tennessee dog whooping tomorrow, and, uh, <laughs> and those fans. I bet all over this southeastern United States had to go nuts, man. Uh, it was a perfect ending to a perfect TV show. I agree with that. Absolutely, a great TV show. Now, tell us about what happened the next day, especially the Goldens against Stopper and Carson. Well, you really did get fired up about that personality profile didn't you dave so, well, so i'm not i'm not embarrassed to admit it there's several matches i'm interested in go ahead okay so so here we go then uh rip smith and uh, norvell austin they opened that card with a fantastic 20 minute time limit draw those two guys could work man and uh that's a first match it was so important uh i watched some of that and i knew at this day is going to rock uh, Robert uh, beat Louis Toulette in his last Southeastern Knoxville match. But Louis Toulette, is, his name's going to come up again. And a couple of years later in 1979, when he, for a short time, is going to become the booker in Southeastern Pensacola, he's going to return. Dick Steinborn beat the Gladiator in the Mass versus Loser Leaves match. Uh, the Gladiator obviously had to remove his mask, and he did. But when he did remove it, he had another mask on underneath it. <laughs> uh, boy, Steinborn went for him, man. <laughs> he, he was still in the ring waiting on him to, you know, expose himself. And when he pulled the mask off and he had another one on, Steinborn just went for him, man. And the, the gladiator hit the floor running. He ran back to the dressing room. So they're going to do it all over again the next week. But 
this time, if the gladiator doesn't unmask totally, then he's going to have to leave Southeastern immediately. So Ron Wright and I, we didn't break any legs, but we sure did give those Germans a good old Tennessee dog whooping. I'll tell you that. (laughs) They got themselves disqualified just to keep from losing the belts, man. Uh, That crowd was so into it. And now, Dave, after after, (laughs) we got down to that Southeastern Championship match between the Stomper and Carson and Jimmy Golden and his dad that you wanted to hear about. So Jimmy in this match had the Stomper beat again the second week in a row. And Don Carson jumped in the ring to get his man disqualified on purpose. And that way he wasn't going to lose the belt to Jimmy. So Bill Golden jumped in the ring and went after Carson and got him down and was pounding the hell out of him. The Coliseum went crazy, man. Carson had so much heat. And then Jimmy was over there pounding on Stomper and dead and Bill's got uh, Carson on the mat, pounded on him, and the stomper threw Jimmy over the top rope, and he went and nailed Bill Golden from behind. Mm. Uh, Carson got his glove out, loaded it up, and the stomper held Jimmy's dad, and uh, Carson busted Jimmy's dad's eye again. And uh, Jimmy came back in the ring, but it wasn't before Carson and stomper finished the job on his dad, and they ended up having to carry his dad to the dressing room. It wasn't, it wasn't a good thing. The main event was breathtaking, man. It had many times in this match, uh, Garvin and Armstrong, they fought for that Cadillac, and each one of them kept kicking out of pins. It, it was a fantastic match, and the crowd was so into it. And finally, after Garvin used his tape thumb, which he had started using as a weapon since the Funk World title match, he taped his thumb, and he would get a headlock, and when he would move you, position you so the referee couldn't see and he would jam you in the throat with that thumb. It was really painful. It was a nasty move. And that's what he was using to get opponents ready to climb up on the top rope and jump in their throats. So uh, Garvin went for the jump, uh, you know, in this match, he used his thumb finally and he goes for the jump, but the referee tried to get in his way. The referee kept him from being able to jump like he normally would on, on Armstrong. And uh, when he came down, Armstrong moved, and the ref collided with Garvin. And uh, both men uh, went down, uh, and Bob's still down. And Bob and uh, Garvin started struggling to their feet. And when Garvin gets up and Bob gets up, Bob's sitting there waiting on him. And he hit him with one of those rights like he had nailed Schultz with on the TV the day before. And Garvin... It looked like he he raised three feet off the floor before he hit the mat. I mean, Bob just nailed him, boy. And uh, after about 45 minutes, Bob uh, covered him, and they counted him out. Uh, The roof came off that building. It was amazing. Uh, Bob was exhausted, uh, you know, as Garvin was, no doubt. And then when when he won it, he kind of rolled out on the floor of the Coliseum. Instantly, when he won the match, Fans just started running from everywhere in the building to the ring. They just wanted to congratulate him. I was surprised they didn't put him on their shoulders and carry him out of there. But then the unthinkable happened. Garvin rolled out of the ring, and he went straight to the car, the Cadillac, sitting over there uh, off to the side on ringside, down on the floor. And uh, Bob was at ringside too, but he couldn't even see the car because thousands of fans. And piled on top of him, and uh, 
they came down from the upper level of the Colosseum and just flooded the ringside lower level of the Colosseum, just covered Bob up. So Garvin got to the Cadillac. He didn't have any interference. Wasn't nobody over there, nobody around it. Mm. Nobody had any idea what was about to happen. So Garvin bends over and he kisses the hood of the Cadillac. And they're filming the match, and the guy's up in the second level, and the, the Cadillac happened to be right below him. So he's, he, he picks this up. It shows Garvin bend over and kiss the hood of the Cadillac. And then he reaches over and picks up one of those big old steel, silver steel stanchions that you hook the little velvet ropes to. You know? Okay, so it was surrounded by the velvet rope, and the stanchion is, is the thing that connects the rope. Yes, the stanchion. Right. You connect the velvet rope to these steel stanchions, and then yeah. you know he just reached over there, unsnapped it, and he grabs this steel stanchion. Uh, and he uh, raised that sucker high above his head, took his time, and walked to the front of that car and slammed that steel stanchion through the windshield of that beautiful Cadillac. No, he did not. Wow. Oh, yes, he did, man. And I mean, the fans that could see it, a lot of people on the floor couldn't see it because he's, he's way away from the ring. And pandemonium's yeah. at the ring where Bob is. Yeah. But those that could see it, you could almost hear the crowd gasp like, oh, my God. Yeah. Thousands of others. Then. Yeah. How long have you been promoting this car? And now it's being destroyed on the Yeah, night. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, so, and, and yeah. oh, it's unreal. I mean, uh, so thousands of others back toward the ring that were still covering Bob up. And the celebration was continuing for, for the fact that Bob had won. They were all unaware of what had happened to the car. So when Bob finally gets to the Cadillac, the guy's still recording, and Bob just goes nuts, as you can imagine. You know, he's worked for all this time, and he's gone through all this, and now the guy throws this big steel pole through his windshield. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now I got something special for listeners today, and, um, and I'm really proud of this. I got an announcement to make here. I had a person that sent me a copy of the original video from 44 years ago of this match and the incident that happens afterward. And then today I, I worked real crazy. And once I got this, it was like, wow, I got to put this in with my stud cast. I want to put it on my website. So I sent this off to my man in Houston, Texas that handles that. And I said, I want this video, the first video people see on my website. So I'm going to invite fans to go to that website, theinstud.com, and then just click on videos. You're going to see something 44 years ago. Uh, I forgot to apologize. It has no sound on it. It's not the best quality, but it's darn sure wonderful to be able to see it at all. And when you watch it, it begins with the end of the match, and then after Bob pins him, pins Garvin, there's a little black. Don't leave the video at this point. There's about 10 seconds of black, and then the video starts again, and it shows Garvin, he's reached the car. And wow. you see him kiss the car. You see him pick up the steel stanchion. You see the whole thing. Wow. I mean, to me, I love these stud casts. Having this video, it's absolutely priceless. It's just unbelievable that I could offer fans the opportunity 
to go and see this piece of history for yourself. I mean, it shows exactly what happened on the afternoon of February 13th, 1977. And it also gives listeners an idea because there are some shots in this video of the massive crowds we were drawing in Southeastern in those days. Yeah. You're going to see more people than you can imagine in a building. And I got to thank uh, the guy that sent this to me. And uh, he's, an, he's an old East Tennessee wrestling historian named Bo James. Uh, he's been on a Super Stud cast with me. He sent me this video. And for those of out there that would like to, to see some of this stuff, and if you'd like to uh, get a DVD of it, I, I'm going to tell you where you can go and get a DVD of not just that, but of other big-time uh, old films they were back in those days from uh, East Tennessee Rusting and uh, Southeastern, a uh, big part of that. So you can get them from Bo James on his website at kingofkingsport.com. What you do is when you get on there, look for the 1972 to 81 Knoxville set, mm-hmm. or you can stream it on Southern States Wrestling Network.com, pivotshare.com, and look there for 1970s East Tennessee films. It's an opportunity for fans to really get a feel for uh, what wrestling was like in the old days for those that are young. And uh, not only that, get a feel for what Southeastern was becoming. Wow, when you see this, you're like, I couldn't believe it. I had I'd never seen it. I thought I remembered it, but I didn't remember it <laughs> like it really was. Wow. So this entire match is on the, the video? Had no, probably the last five minutes of the actual match. Okay. okay. And then well, the Ronnie Garvin getting to the car. All of that the, is on the map. Yeah. The shocking moment after you, as we said, you promoted this car for how many weeks, how many months, and then he drops a stanchion through the window. And I don't think he really dropped it. I think he speared it through. Oh there. no! When you see it, when you see it, it, it is. It's wow. not. He didn't just drop it. No, no. I mean, he, wow. there was no question that this thing was going to go through that window. <laughs> Man, you have outdone yourself today, Stud. It's always a lot of fun. I, all right, I got one more question though. What was the attendance for that Sunday afternoon? It had to be huge. It was the biggest one yet, my man, in the Coliseum. 5,400 people. It was bigger than the Terry Funk World Title Day. Um, And, uh, you know, we'd been building for it for a long time. And, uh, boy, the fans showed up. And did they get to see something unreal all day? Well, it's going to be a great stud cast today, no doubt about it. I think it's time we get under the learning tree. And what was the question once again? And remind us who asked it today. So the learning tree question came from a gentleman named Alexander Johnson, and, and he asked, when was the next NWA world title match coming to Southeastern, and was it also going to have the same Terry Funk type of buildup? So that's a great question. Uh, you know, the next NWA world title match was a couple of months away from this February 13th event, uh, the day we're talking about in this studcast. But I like the idea. Mr. Johnson realized the importance of that kind of match and the attention it needed in advance to make it as special as it really was. You know, this guy must be some kind of promoter or something, you know, (laughs) he's pretty sharp. So I got the call. I'll tell you how that this next one comes about the next world championship match. I get a call from Sam Mutchie. 
the president of the NWA. Oddly enough, it was two days after this event. He informs me that I'm going to have the world champion on uh, April 26, 1977, mm. on a Thursday, and that the new world champion, I didn't even know, was Harley Race. Wow. And so fans are probably not going to be aware of this, but being a member of the NWA didn't automatically mean you were going to get be notified before there was an NWA title switch. There was a darn good reason that that wasn't the case. You know, even though every NWA member obviously should kayfabe everything, you know, much less title changes, uh, some of the guys that were owners of businesses if they knew when there was going to be a title change, probably weren't going to be able to be trusted to keep their mouths shut about it. So this title change took place as usual with just a handful of guys even knowing about it. Mm-hmm. So Sam told me Southeastern's next world title was set for Thursday night, April 26, 1977. Well, I was unhappy. Knoxville's a Friday night town. It ain't a Thursday night town. You know, I wasn't happy about not getting either a Friday or a Sunday. I'd had uh, funk on a Sunday. Now they're going to give me a Thursday. You know, and we would usually ran on Friday or Sunday afternoon. He's sending Harley Race in to wrestle on a Thursday. Yes. Yes. Instead of the regular Friday night or a Sunday afternoon when we ran Knoxville. So you so, had to be uh, kind of creative uh, all of a sudden and figure out how, what you were going to do with your schedule because that that's kind of awkward, it seems uh, like. Oh, well, you know, uh, running on a weeknight is obviously not nearly as good as running on a weekend. And I was so upset. I almost said to Sam, I, I don't want him at all. Don't even okay. send him to me then. In retrospect, after looking at what's going to happen on that night, I would have been an idiot to say that. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad I didn't say that to Sam. Don't send him to me now. You know, <laughs> so I was a member of the NWA. I was a new member. I'd only been in that organization for just about two years. And I shouldn't have expected to get just weekends for my championship dates. But mm-hmm. I just missed one very important Sunday afternoon playing a basketball game for Sam on a Saturday night. Yeah, you know? no doubt. And when I brought that to his attention, he apologized to me. And he said, Ron, I promise you'll never get anything but a weekend again. <laughs> so so I, I figured, okay, well, we're going to, we'll take Harley on a Thursday. Wow. So oddly enough, before I answer Alexander's last question about how we set this one up, I got to tell fans a story out there. Many territories failed to give NWA world title matches enough attention, as far as I was concerned anyway. Uh, big territories, which I would have one of them later, uh, got the champion for an entire week, which I did, uh, you know, once I got the big territory. And they didn't focus on just one city like we did on Knoxville. They had several cities and they had several nights that the champions wrestling in different cities. So some bookers were always concerned about drawing that huge crowd on that championship night and then business falling off the next week or two weeks in a row, three weeks in a row, they lost their momentum from their regular angles and programs by having a world champion. Well, everybody handled their business differently in the NWA, and that was the beauty of territories, man. There was no perfect way to do anything in wrestling. 
Creativity was the juice that fed bookers and territories. And uh, right now, the state wrestling is in. We all realize how important it was to lose that creativity, don't we? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, no, it, no. Yeah. wrestling is dead because they lack creativity. So it's a sad thing. So, Mr. Johnson, it's time to answer your last question. Were we going to give the next champion the same built up as Terry Funk? In my territory, yes, sir, we were. We didn't get him, but about three times a year, the world champion in southeastern Knoxville. And every time he came, we gave him a big build up. So I always considered this world championship matches that were upcoming an opportunity for us to expand our base with another one of those huge crowds like we had had for Terry. What I wanted to do is I wanted to bust the doors off the Coliseum on that night in April. And by the time we got there, I can hardly wait to tell fans, we didn't bust the doors off. We exploded the doors off that building. Mm. All right. So uh, who's who's Harley Race going to wrestle? Uh, no, 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 man. No, no, wait, no. <laughs> No, wait. no you, you, you're back on your horse again, we, man. You got to get rid of that recliner horse. So are you going to beat Harley race? Are you fighting him? Hey, What's going hey, on? hey, <laughs> you know, this is a, this is a one week at a time thing, man. You know, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to get here. to it. I see what you're doing here. All right. <laughs> That's another great one, Rod. No doubt about it. People I know are always coming up to me and say, the stud cast just keep getting better every week. After this one, I absolutely know they're right. We are getting into a time period in southeastern Knoxville that is absolutely remarkable. So, all right, I got to tell you, I can't wait to find out who the legend Harley Race was going to be facing. So that's, that's going to be cool to hear that. On Facebook, you can be friends with a legend. Join Ron on Facebook by simply liking and following the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, or the author Ron Fuller Welch pages. You can become friends with him on both at Twitter and Instagram. It's Ron Fuller Welch. The new super stud cast number 38 part one is now out. And this one is incredible. It's a ride into Southeastern Knoxville's journey to become the best small territory in the sports history at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99 for three hours of wrestling history. Ron, I'm sure you've got something to say about this one. Yeah, I really do. Uh, and I got to thank Les Thatcher. I was smart enough to get Les involved uh, from the very beginning in Southeastern's history and uh, all the way to the very end he was there. And in this particular super stud cast, Les is just really phenomenal. And I just really think uh, for fans out there, if you're a historian of any kind and you want to hear how a territory was built from beginning to end, this one is a it's 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 a pretty good uh, super stud cast. Uh, I'm I'm proud of it. It's uh, I, I don't know that I say that about. I think I, uh, I have some great super stud cast. This one is really unusual. It's different. All right, that's pretty awesome. Don't forget those Southeastern Continental DVDs in a five-pack with 60 matches, more than 12 hours of some of the greatest matches in both of those companies' history. Only $39.99 with free shipping. 
Get it now at tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store. It's the best deal in wrestling. Okay, and we cannot finish today and leave Brutus out. I'm afraid that that bad boy lion would leave the Smoky Mountains and find me. Nobody wants that to happen. I certainly don't. He's being compared to Jaws, and after reading the book, I certainly know why. You can get it on Amazon.com. Amazon.com. Look for Brutus novel or get Rhonda autograph it personally from his website at tnstud.com. Click on stud store and get ready to be terrified. Okay. So for real, who's Harley race going to be fighting? <laughs> you and recliner are giving up. Are you <laughs> not giving up? All right. If, if I'm not going to get it, where are we writing next week then? Uh, we're going to learn uh, as a booker. We're going to go back to wearing a booker hat next week. Uh, we're going to learn how to follow something like the Cadillac tournament that ended in this stud cast. Uh, we're going to focus on the week, obviously, next week, the uh, following week of February 20th, Sunday, February 20th, 77. we got a repaired Cadillac that's going to be coming back, and Ronnie Garvin is going to put up $12,000 of his own money to have a chance to win the car oh. you know, and keep his money. Plus, there's five more great matches, but if he loses that match, He's not going to get the car, and Bob Armstrong's getting his $12,000. Right. Oh, wow. (laughs) There's even more at stake the next week than there was, I guess, in winning the car. There's five other great matches on that card. We'll talk about the TV that promotes that card, the results, obviously, in the attendance. Next week's learning tree is pretty cool. It says a question about, did I get a great deal for the Cadillac by advertising the dealership I bought it from? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that sounds like a promoter to me too. <laughs> that, did, you, that did you get a deal on replacing the windshield? That's yeah. my <laughs> well, yeah, there, there's money being spent on that car already. Yeah, I, I bet. All right. I should have known the Cadillac angle is not finished. No telling what is on the next Coliseum card. And I can't wait to hear what kind of deal you cut with the dealership for the Cadillac as you were just talking about. That's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, you know, uh, I want to thank everybody out there, uh, all the listeners that ride with us every week around the world, man. And and I want to thank them for their compliments. Uh, I get so many great compliments about the show and about what these studcasts are all about. I I thank those that spread the word, man, uh, that tell their friends about us. And and, uh, if you like us, uh, I encourage you to tell others about it. I think what we do here is pretty unique. Please take care of yourselves and and others as always, and may God bless us all. May God bless you too, Stud. Thank you so much. This has been a ton of fun. This is David Summers thanking you for riding today with us and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.